Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Black Christmas starring Olivia Hussey, Kier Doulet, Margot Kidder, John Saxon, written by Roy Moore and directed by Bob Clark. Christmas stories, Bob Clark. <laughs> he likes his Christmas-themed movies, He does, he? yeah, his Canadian Christmas-filmed movies, exactly. Welcome back to Rice Mile Films, episode 101. Yeah. Here we go into the next 100 and then pretty soon into the new year. And today we're starting a new cast. We'll just call this To All a Good Night. Good, I like that one. I just made it up. Sure. Uh, and up first from 1974, Black Christmas. Uh, just finished watching it. This one's... Uh, uh, it's got a ton to talk about, whether it's how they made the film and then just talking about the killer alone. So the the discussion's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Mm-hmm. Having some more of the old Foresters single single barrel. Uh, so cheers to you, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Mm. So Matt, we've had old Forester Statesman, old Forester Bottled and Bond, and now old Forester single barrel or any of those kind of jumping out at you like where does this one kind of fit in with those two the previous bottle the bottle and bond i think was the last one mm. i think that's number one <clears throat> this is number two and the, the third one would be number three the first one would be number three gotcha they're all good though mm-hmm. um, it's more of like a it, it feels more of like an old school type of bourbon being that it's been around for so many so many years that's how i always feel with any bottle of old forester mm-hmm. if you looked up in the dictionary what old forester would be It'd be this is your grandfather's recipe. <laughs> It'd be this old forester. Sure. It just why is it the proof? Maybe it could be it stings a bit. Mm-hmm. It's not trying to be apologetic about. It's going to light you a little bit up. Well, according to their label, the first bottled bourbon. Yeah, and he's got his nice Santa hat on. According to us, the first film review podcast too. There you go. You put whatever you want label you want on it. They're both spicy. They are. Before we get started, uh, just a big thank you to everyone that reached out to us this last week in celebration of episode number 100. It was greatly appreciated. And then just in response to a few questions, Matt, everyone really liked your inclusion of Morgan Freeman from Shawshank Redemption as a supporting actor. And uh, like, it's an amazing performance as Red. Yeah. And uh, uh, Stephen Katchik, uh said one of uh, his favorite supporting, and I might agree with him that he was probably the best part of a movie that we were totally soured on, and it was Brad Pitt from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Probably the best part of that film, so good choice there. Mm-hmm. And then the two films like uh, that I think the, they're most excited for, Seven and The Thing. So I'm excited for those two. Those are going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get this uh, started with our flight question. That's my favorite Christmas song. There's just something haunting about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the time of joy and giving, there's something about that song that's like, I don't know, a little sad. I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. You're into Christmas carols. Mm. You like them. Mm. Enough. Mm-hmm. 
In moderation, maybe. There you go. Like everything. Mm-hmm. Very special Christmas part one. Do mm-hmm. you ever have that album? Mm-mm. So you should check it out. There's a really great version of Silent Night on there. Might be the best tune on the whole song. Sting does a really good one too with Gabriel's song. Okay. It's a really good version of Silent Night on that with Stevie Nicks and Robbie Neville of all people. Oh, C'est wow. la vie. Which kind of a stupid song. Yeah. Not even kind of. It is a stupid song. <laughs> but it's a really great version of that. Okay. Before we head out, yeah. like when one of the breaks out sound, I'll, I'll fire it up and let you listen all today right, so on the show. Sounds good. It's good. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, my flight question to you today, Matt, is it's the holiday season. Uh, Christmas is right around the corner. We all have our go-to holiday, just movie traditions that, you know, every year we got to kind of come back to that, pop it on, because it's just tradition. The year feels weird if we don't kind of roll that out. And the reason I kind of ask you that is this film, Black Christmas, has actually become an interesting tradition uh, that I started with my mom about 10 years ago. And it was an interesting Christmas because my dad was out of town. Um, uh, my grandmother was um, very sick at that point, so he was with her, and it was just the two of us. And it was a weird Christmas. Um, I kind of we didn't I didn't want to like really I didn't want any gifts that year, so hmm. we decided on kind of no gift exchange. So when was this? About ten years ago. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and um, so we got back from our family's little get together, and it was like late. It was like maybe eleven o'clock at night, and I was like, "Hey, do you want to watch a movie?" And so I was like, "I was like, do you want to watch Black Christmas?" And we did, and she loved it, and I loved watching it. And that kind of became just a little tradition, and so I always got to be sure to pop that one on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes on like New Year's Eve night, it just feels like that's just like when I like to watch it. Just put on a pot of coffee, put that on, and that's kind of tradition. So it's good. What do you got? Matter of fact, we're about to do, we have two. Okay. One of them's going to go down tonight and next one probably within the next four or five days. They both revolve around food, mm-hmm. which not surprising for most people, I imagine. Um, we have a movie one as well. Actually, there's two movie ones. It's okay. It's a Wonderful Life will be tonight. Mm-hmm. And then we have some friends that are coming over and we do a Christmas ornament thing and... Um, a gingerbread house thing mm, nice. and eat and the whole time it's a wonderful life is on with probably something else. Yeah. We've all seen it enough to where I don't have to sit down and watch the movie, like to learn the film. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're going to talk about that film later, Yeah, but uh, that's one of them. Okay. And then the other one is it's usually about the 22nd to 23rd. The kitchen's <clears throat> in full effect for many days at my house. Sure. My wife is bacon, 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 bacon. And the day that we really get down to just the straight baking day is always Shawshank on that day. Interesting. Followed by Die Hard. Oh, okay. Those two movies back to back as we just fire up the kitchen. Double feature. It truly is. And it's been four or five, six years now we've been going through that. Oh, that's great. So those are our two. But yeah, both revolve around film also. That's not really much of a surprise for anyone who knows you or I, right? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, that's, I, those are, those are great and interesting too. Die Hard kind of falls in line. I'm probably going to skip Die Hard this year just because we did it the episode back on it back in July. Yeah. Um, but if it weren't for black Christmas, one that I always got to tune on and I haven't done it yet. So it's got to, got to mark it up is, is home alone. Like mm-hmm. I think I've mentioned this, I can't, who knows which episode, but I'll just kind of state it again. I had a weird obsession with home alone. When I was a kid and I wanted to rent it, rent it all the time. This is the only thing I wanted to watch. I was obsessed. I wanted to like set up booby traps in my own house and mm-hmm. catch bad guys. <laughs> and my mom had to, that's well, funny. She comes up twice on this, but, um, uh, she had to like trick me to like see new movies mm-hmm. by telling me you'll like this. It's like home alone. 
and then we'd rent it, and I was like, that was nothing like Home Alone, Mom. How funny. So that's that's how that's how much I liked it. And I liked the second one too, Lost in New York. That movie's kind of insane, like plot wise, but it's a lot of fun. I like the third one too with the new kid and little Scarlett Johansson's in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh I've always really liked that franchise. I don't know what it is. Like that's um I like the character, Joe Pesci again coming up again on the pod, Daniel Stern, Catherine O'Hara, John Hurt, like a great cast. Great. And John Hughes written movie, but that's Chris Columbus directing. Right. And I think that the story on that is maybe we could do a Home Alone episode one of these days, but he was going to do Christmas Vacation and he spent about a week on set with Chevy Chase and was like, I can't work with this asshole. A lot of people say that about him. So he bailed, but John Hughes was like, well, let me see what else I have in the can because Hughes wrote that movie too and it was Home Alone. So Mm -hmm. it was just a natural fitting. And I believe Home Alone still has the record for most consecutive weekends at number one. I think it's like something like 18 or 20 weeks. My gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Highest grossing comedy of all time. Like it's got so many, it was a huge hit when it came out. Super high concept. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no shortage of sentimentality in it. And the, like you said, the booby traps that you tailored your house to are forever memorable. Yeah. Taking a you know can of paint in the face. And yeah, the one that the one that always gets me is when he tars the the stairs. Oh, yeah. and Daniel Stern's going up, and there's a nail in the middle of one, oh. and he just fully just oh. steps on the nail, and then just falls all the way back, oh. and then so his feet are already messed up, and then he goes to the the bay window, Ice. and then and then steps on the Christmas ornament. <laughs> <laughs> They, those guys get torn up, torn absolutely up. torn up. Mm-hmm. And then in the second one, there's like legit things that would like kill, kill them. you. Like when his head's on fire and he sticks his head in a toilet of kerosene, <laughs> <laughs> his head would explode. Yeah, but that's the charm of that series to me is just the suspension of disbelief and just kind of have a good time with it. So, so after you watched these movies, your mom said you should watch this. It's like Home Alone, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Were you glad you watched it? And did any of them stay in your oh definite, filmography? Definitely. The good one, job, mom. The one. And, man, Disney, 90s Disney, that might be a cask one of these days because between their animation and their live action stuff, like, pretty good decade for them. Uh, But one of them that stuck was a film called Heavyweights with Ben Stiller. And I didn't want to rent it. I was like, I don't want any part of that. And I rented it, and it's, like, it's one of my, still one of my favorite just, like, kid comedy movies. It's it's so inappropriate. It's just about a fat camp. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Ben Stiller is, like, on point as Tony Perkins. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I've never seen that You've film. never seen it? Oh, I haven't. I don't know. It, maybe not an episode, but maybe you just come over and we'll just watch it one day. It's ridiculous. But, yeah, the, the, she did come through. Galaxy Quest was another one. Oh, I think score. that's when I talked about that. I was talking about Alan Rickman, I think. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, my mom came through in a lot of ways. So I have heard a thing for expanding my film repertoire because I still might just be watching Home Alone every weekend. <laughs> we should still use that on the podcast. There you so go. we're going to watch something that Jesse's never seen. It's kind of like Home Alone. Yep. And then it's not. It's not. Before and, we go any further, one thing I know we're going to get into the yeah. happy hour here. Mm-hmm. I watched it. We're up to speed. We're not going to spoil this for anybody on the episode. Mm. But thumbs up or thumbs down on the way The Mandalorian ended last night. Thumbs middle. I think I'm with you. <laughs> Again, we're not going to give anything away on the show. Yeah. We'll talk about that next year and there you go. Patreon or something maybe. But yeah. um, it's, it's our thing is 
You, as, can't, you can't even you can't even say what you're about to say. Don't do it because okay. I know because you, you can't even say. I it. won't. Well, well, go watch it and then you'll know. But yeah, thumbs middle. Right. Yeah. We've addressed an issue with that series, and maybe and it's it, addressable it, it, again. It keeps rearing its ugly head. I'll say that. I'm fair. Is that spoiler yeah. free? <laughs> yeah. If that spoils it, you are smarter than we're giving you credit for, and we apologize. Excellent. I love your choices, Matt. Let us know what your holiday traditions are, whether that be Elf, Christmas Story, Christmas Vacation, Miracle on 34th Street, the original, which I've never seen, actually. Like, there's a few that I've just never watched, and I don't know why. So, Being that you're so close, we should include you in the... Probably not the baking and watching movies, because there's not a whole lot going on, but the social thing going on is just maybe not the time yet. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds good. So let's get to happy hour time and our review breakdown of Black Christmas. Claire? Claire? lullaby is that i don't know this this guy's that we're dealing with is pretty sick watership down lullaby oh interesting (laughs) black christmas starts out with uh just a static shot of where we're going to spend most of the film which is the sorority house here and just right off the bat we got to just address a lot of things right up front this is 1974 this is four years before halloween And already this film is introducing a lot of concepts that are going to become very commonplace with the slasher genre. First one being this POV. And I can't believe I'm about to say this. I actually think this POV works a little bit better than it does in Halloween because you see actually more of the actions of the killer than just kind of the camera movement. That shot, I had to look this up too because I'm always curious about how did they do that when he walks up the trellis into the attic it's obviously a guy climbing up and I'm like, how did they attach a, a camera to him? So I, I found my answer. Mm. So, Oh, where is it right here? So, uh, the PO, uh, the, the camera wig was attached to the head of, uh, Bert Dunk. He actually invented this rig that would kind of strap to his head. That way it could kind of catch his exact POV as he ascended the, the house. And, and it has to be 60 millimeter cause the other cameras are way too heavy. So, kind of invented this thing that allowed it and him to perform the actions, but still get the visual of, of what that looks like. Oh, that's like incredibly impressive for, for 1974, no steady cam, no, uh, Panaglide. This is like a totally new invention that works really well in this thing. For me in this film, there's a lot of parallels between it and prom night, Ooh. both the Canadian influence. <laughs> I was going to say, is it they're Canadian? Maybe. And I actually wanted to talk about that. Not yet, but I wanted to get to that later on. The opening of Prom Night's pretty memorable. The mm-hmm. hide-and-seek and out the window and that whole bit's really like they're, long and drawn out and uncomfortable. They're playing a weird game in that. They're playing the killer's coming. Yeah. Killer's coming. Killers. Yeah. yeah. So there's that. Mm-hmm. This has an interesting, equally interesting opening too. The POV that you mentioned in Halloween's a little bit limited in vision because you're behind the mask. And so you get the two mm-hmm. holes and there's a 
like space where the nose is still has matter that you can't quite see. Mm-hmm. And that works in some ways to its benefit in some ways is a little frustrating, but on purpose. And, you know, we can get into the metaphor of behind the eyes of the killer and not really seeing everything and not quite understanding. And there's a lot you can play with there. And I'm on board with all that. Mm-hmm. This is very deliberate in creating the place that our killer is going to take residence. Mm-hmm. What the, the part of this that I really liked was, gosh, I think it's Margot Kidder's character. What's her name? Um, Barb. Barb. <laughs> Hard drinking Barb. Mm-hmm. Is in the window, and we are behind the killer, over the shoulder POV, and we see him move in front of it to where almost all of the field of vision is taken up by him in the window. Mm-hmm. And that might be frustrating because you can't see what's happening with Margot Kidder, but frankly, nothing's happening. You're just getting the idea that he is really invading their space. And this gets to the question that I wanted to ask you. Okay. I know that that trope in film really bugs you. Mm -hmm. The invasion of your personal space. Does this movie go far enough with that to where it puts you out of a comfort zone and moves you out of a place that um, would be a nice residence in a fun, friendly film, which this has no intention of being. Absolutely. Yeah. And you really, that get, why, first of all, yes. And then why does that get you so much? I don't know. It's just, you know, you hear a lot of these stories and whether, I think we're going to talk about some real life ghouls in this episode, whether that be Ted Bundy, but like a lot of these people, whether it's the golden state killer, like these are people that have for real invaded people's actual homes. And just the idea of your safe space, your surroundings being, tampered with, invaded with by someone who doesn't belong there to do ungodly things to you is troubling for me. Um, The home is supposed to be safe. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, now they can be safer with security systems and whatnot. But uh, there's something about the invasion of that that just really gets under my skin. And here, right from the get-go, almost to a Hitchcockian level, we are establishing that this killer has his eyes fixated on this house He's going to take a residence in the attic for the duration of the film. And the part that gets me the most is these characters, they don't know it. They they don't know it the entire time that this guy's just chilling up there. That's interesting that you brought up Hitchcock because two movies came to me when we were watching this today too, mm-hmm. The Lodger and Blackmail. Mm-hmm. The first one with the way Annie Andra comes to discover <clears throat> what she's done in Blackmail and why she's done it behind the sheath. But then in the lodger, yeah, I, I, I love the lodger. I like do too. That's a good one. The idea that the person that's this terrible murderer is mm-hmm. in your residence. Mm-hmm. Now they know it a little bit in that, but I found myself thinking a little bit about those films during this. Um, we should talk about Annie Andra someday in Blackmail. I think that's mm-hmm. a film worth it just occurs to me right now. I think, it, the, I think it, that it made one of the flight or nightcap questions when we were talking about Hitchcock. I think it was our Hitchcock moments. Yeah. Yeah. When the killer's upstairs and they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to this later, when we've stashed one of the corpses or eventually two of the corpses upstairs and they never find out what that did for me is create a selfishness inside all of the protagonists in this film. And that includes our survivors at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie really struggles 
not in a bad way, enough to the film's fault, oh, struggling sure. in the depiction of the characters with trying to be selfless enough mm-hmm. to get over themselves in order to figure out what's going on. Uh, and we'll get into the parallels between the killer and the survivors and what that has to do with birth and, and all that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But I thought that that would come up today. Sure. The question is like the home invasion element. Oh, of course. Stationed in your residence and how much you do not like that. Well, as I was kind of saying, I was like, I was like, man, I wonder if Ted Bundy watched this movie because in 78, Bundy did the same thing. He invaded a Florida State uh, sorority house and it was kind of his last, but he went absolutely berserk at this place and killed a lot of people and did a lot of stuff that I'm not going to go into on this podcast, but just go look it up. Just heinous acts. And it, it's much like this. Yeah, the, the invasion of the of the safe space. Now, I want to ask you, does that work for you? Because a lot of times in slashers are essentially whodunits and kind of trying to figure out who who's at this at the behind of the game. You know, most of them, like like a prom night is a big whodunit. Uh, not know so much Halloween or for the first Friday the 13th definitely is. But does that diminish the the surprises for you along the way? Because it's almost a flip on that because it's a surprise for the characters on screen more than anything. And I think it works really well. Yeah, no, it was fine for me. This movie has more of a true crime feel to it for sure. As we're still pretty young in this slasher genre, right? we can go back to Eyes Without a Face and then maybe this and then going forward. There's a few things coming up prior to this, but like this is the one that I think really starts to establish a lot of things that everyone's going to start using. As we get a little bit into the Michael, Freddy, Jason space, we start getting more of the supernatural element. This is not. This is grounded in just basic human condition, both feet on the ground, people doing terrible things to people. And I think part of the thing that also reminded me of Prom Night in this film is, again, the deliberate nature of mostly the second act. Mm -hmm. There's a long period in this film without any violence perpetrated by Billy. Mm -hmm. Same way in Prom Night. There's a lot in Prom Night that's just sort of watching these people go through the procedure of justice, I guess, and by that I mean policing. Mm -hmm. A lot of this, mostly the whole second act is this. And because of that and them following these leads and like in the park where there's not a chance in hell they're going to find any resolution because he's in your in your uh, attic. Mm-hmm. Cops that are too busy telling jokes to do their job. What's really revealed is I think the malleable nature yeah. <laughs> of humans in the moment, the movie would argue they're kind of not worth a shit. Yeah. I think this is not a great depiction of strong human interaction and ability to persevere. Mm-hmm. I mean, the movie ends before we get to it, but I don't think there's any survivors by the time this, if we go another hour in this film, no one's left no except way. our bad guy. No way. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't think this movie is a beacon of success in people and boy, you just stay with it. Like this is the antithesis of Rocky. Oh yeah. People are going to do stupid things in the moment. The mob sucks. And most of the time, people are so consumed with their own selfish natures that they can't come to a conclusion that's long-term going to be good for anyone. And to me, that's over and over and over again in this film. So that's a really long answer Mm -hmm. to your question. And it's, no, it worked perfectly good for me. But this is a different kind of slasher horror. This is very procedural by the book, Cop Slasher. Yeah. 
Good. Excellent. Uh, let's talk about, so one of the ongoing tropes through this one is these phone calls that, we'll just call him Billy, um, is giving to this sorority house. Now, he's actually calling from the house mother's bedroom, Mrs. Mac, because it's a separate phone line. And I like how they just dismiss that so quickly when they're tapping the phones later. It says it's a separate phone uh, and it's a separate phone number and no calls are coming in on that. And had they just tapped that, they would get their answer really quickly. But how are they to to, to second guess that? They they're not they, the cops don't even know that the guy's up there. Right. So these phone calls that come in have always, for me, been extremely troubling. And for 1974, whether it's the language depicted or just the sheer disturbing nature surrounding the phone calls, I mean, this first one, I'm not going to say everywhere, but whether it's licking this or sucking that, uh, that the caller's coming in, just taunting these women. And it's been going on for a while, it sounds like, uh, is enough to put me on edge. And I was like, well, there's something just not quite right. Like like in the 90s, you'd star 69 someone. Now we have caller ID. Like this wouldn't happen today. You'd block that number. Back then, you kind of just had to pick it up and be like, Jesus, like again, you kind of just have to like kind of go through the motions with it. And it's become so common in the sorority that they've almost started a watch party around that. And they're, they're kind of poking fun at it. Like, oh, here it comes again, everybody. He's on the phone again. Everybody come around. It's the Mona. And... <laughs> This one goes a little further than I think most have. Mm -hmm. We start getting into just different kinds of fellatio, whatever, right? Yeah. Which will come up again a little bit later. F-E. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the way they sort of celebrate that, Mm -hmm. and we get all Margot Kidder, hard-drinking Barb, not only engaging, but rather indulging it for a little bit until it goes too far. Well, it, how it ends, like when she says, she says, you fucking creep. And then like all the silly sounds and the silly voices. And then you just get this, I'm going to kill you. And then, boo, and then it just goes like, that is just chilling. Absolutely chilling. You brought up something I think it's important right now again, too. And that's okay. where this laid the groundwork for what's coming. Mm-hmm. POV, Halloween, um, the callers in the house when a stranger calls. What about the creepy phone call from the killer high scream? Yeah, exactly. Do you like scary movies? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now that's done in a more kind of fun way, the way scream kind of kills people in a fun way. It's, that sounds awful, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's I, cat and mouse. Okay. It's a game that he's playing and a little bit lighthearted. Like the killer's <clears> kind <throat> of playing with Sydney at the beginning of that mm-hmm. um, or Drew Barrymore. Yeah. What, and Sydney later. Mm-hmm. He's not playing here, man. The sound is 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 muddled. <laughs> reference to pigs yeah. and you know all kinds of weird oral fixations. And I think there's something also taking place. I think there's a backstory being told uh. to us that's hard to decipher. That's equally disturbing. It's a snapshot into what Billy is and where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And that's haunting too. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot at play here with this very men- mentally ill individual that's just toying with them right now. In between the narrative of Billy's biographical accounting of his baby and Agnes and all the other stuff that comes up, there's these terrible intermittent screams that continually emit from the phone that are, I mean, deafening. Like, it hurt my ears. The screams are so bad. And that the yelling that Billy's going to do in this film, especially at the end when he's chasing, what the hell's her name, Claire? Oh, the, 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 final, the final girl, Jess. Jess, thank hey, you. you should know. It's, it's me. Yes, yeah, geez, sorry. 
Those screams are really hard for me to guttural. That's scary for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, loud the, the, and oppressive. It echoes, like you said, guttural, squashing. I had to look because this sounds like a film that had been remastered for Blu-ray or just something. And like, I can't find anything that they touched up the sound. Like this is like 1970. This is what it sounded like back then, which is shocking to me. I mean, it sounds in, it sounds intense. How does Bob Clark? <laughs> let's do this now. How does Bob Clark do something that's as unnerving as this is, and then follow it up with Porky's and Christmas, Christmas Story? I don't know. It's a guy that has a lot, a lot of just different ways he can take film. I mean, he can do a raunch comedy, a family comedy, yeah. and slasher. <laughs> we haven't mentioned Bob Clark. There hasn't been any reason really to mention him up to this point. No, that's a strange <clears throat> trilogy of films. Mm-hmm. There's, I'm sure there's some other stuff, and I'll pull up at it here. And well, look. he did a movie in the late 90s that my mom took me to because she tried to say it's like Home Alone, and we went to the theater to go see it, and it's a film that's not good called Baby Geniuses. I've seen that too. Uh, and then he tragically died, like I think mid-2000s, in a car accident with his son. So uh, it is a strange series of movies for, for him, but they have a tone. The guy knows how to use a camera. Oh, man. The camera work in this thing is... I was like, I was like, even did De Palma come talk with you? Because the split diopters, the the stuff that's out of focus, and he likes. I love his use in this film, the the, the slow zoom in uh, of something. You get a lot of that with Jess hiding behind the uh, banister of the stairs in the basement, as she it's slowly pulling in on her as we slowly pull in on the window of Peter out there, but really drawing you into the the tension. Um, he just, I think, evokes a good tone in this movie. Like, you know how you're supposed to feel. With lightheartedness pepper, peppered in uh, <laughs> throughout. I'll, I'll play this little bit here. And we can talk about Mrs. Mack. I have a, a piece of truth about Mrs. Mack. You're going to love it. I do my best. I don't know what the bastards expect of me. Christ's sake. Claude? Is that you, Claudiekins? Claude? Here, kitty, 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 kitty. Come on, Claude. Come say goodbye to Mommy. Is that you, Claude? Oh, Jesus, Claude. Look what you made me do. <laughs> Come on, Claude. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. Come on, Claude. I gotta go. Here, kitty. God damn it, Claude, you little prick. Right to Claire's dad. Uh, So just real quickly, after the first series of phone calls, one of the girls, Claire, goes up to her room to pack because she's going to get out of here for the holidays and is brutally just, like, suffocated by a a dry cleaning uh, sheet Mm -hmm. and then put up in the upstairs rocking chair in the attic. In, in the window. In the window. Yeah, exactly. If anyone looked up there, they would, they would what is that up there? Mm-hmm. And it is high enough up that you wouldn't be able to tell right away. But it instantly sets the events in motion because Claire's father's come to pick her up. She's not there. Now it starts this whole missing chase, and it's kind of really laying the groundwork for this sorority run by Mrs. Mack. And, man, Mrs. Mack is just so hard sucks. drinking. <laughs> and sucks. Well, she's, she, well, she's, they get her a Christmas gift that she hates. Oh. 
hard drinking. She's got bottles of sherry all over the house, which sounds disgusting. Mm-hmm. Her teeth are all rotted, probably because she's just been drinking like hard. Like, I don't know. Like, I've obviously not in a sorority or have never been in one, but I don't know. What <laughs> no? the, I don't know what the role of house mother is. Yeah. But it sounds like she just super neglects this job. Like, it's almost a pain in the ass for her. Um, and she, she's being cooperative, but it, it, the whole thing is just such an inconvenience for her. Matt, do you know who they asked to play Mrs. Mack? And she said no, but I, I would love to see this person saying those lines. Shelly Winters. Ooh, close. Tell me. Betty Davis. Oh, wow. That could have been fun. That sure could have <laughs> that been. That could have been fun. <laughs> Betty Davis turned that down. I know. That's interesting. At, at she that, didn't at, turn down a lot. At that point, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know why this was above her. Wow. That could have been something because she's very much that framework as well. Um, but I like it because the film knows how to balance the tone. And maybe this is just Bob Clark as a person and the films he likes to make. But as gruesome as these calls are and some of these death scenes and how just uncomfortable I am with the scenario, the levity with some of these moments like Mrs. Mack and then later with Keystone Cop uh, receptionist help, I think, cut the tension a little bit. They help kind of keep it a little tongue-in-cheek, which I am appreciative in this. I don't think it it overshadows the rest of the film. Um, I think it's their welcomed laughs. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. The drinking nature and the way she hides the bottles is kind of pathetically funny. Mm-hmm. The basin of the toilet, whatever book on the shelf. And we had the question, like, why would she bother hiding the sherry in this sorority anyway and then the answer was well because probably because barb would finish it off before she could get back to it exactly miss mac reminds me of franklin oh from texas chainsaw i wanted her off the screen now immediately interesting yeah bob clark's interesting when you look at the three films that he does and the way that he chooses to kind of portray women Mm -hmm. take all of the ones in this film and they are not objectified at all. They're just regular people. And he's picked some nice looking women. So it just sort of works out like that. But there's no objectivity to it. And then you get Mrs. Mack. And you can tell he is going out of his way to make her hideous. Yeah. There's that bit when she washes or washes her teeth. Most people call that brushing their teeth. When she brushes her teeth. And I think. With the chaser of Sherry. <laughs> they, they're brown. They are. Oh, gross. Well, the sherry out of the back of the toilet. Doesn't help. And then your mouthwash is more sherry. I've never even had sherry. Terrible complexion, <laughs> half of the lipstick on, frumpy. Are they, She's just, are, are they trying to, is he trying to show like this is the inevitability of a sorority member if you stay in it too long? Because isn't that what a house mother is? Is she just kind of evolves I might be wrong in this, but like obviously a member of the sorority and then evolves to, you know, overseeing the operations of said sorority. Maybe. Yeah. But I have something I wanted to go off on this. Okay, go ahead. Ride with me here. Yeah, go ahead. All right. There is definitely a theme in this film of the importance or gravity of motherhood. Mm-hmm. As house mother, if that's what we're going to call Mrs. Mack, given charge of these five or six women that are in this house and not cared for properly, all hell breaks loose. And we do see a rather ugly piece of them. And even when the piece of them that is denying motherhood, which is going to be Jess 
not wanting to carry through with the pregnancy that's from her boyfriend because she knows that if she has that baby, she's tied to him and all of her ambitions go out the window. You're at a very interesting position. And that's if you do a bad job at mothering, it's ugly. But if you don't become a mother, then you're deemed as selfish and rather ugly as well. So he doesn't really leave any outs for them. Now take all of that and juxtapose it against Billy's motivations. <laughs> Is this movie, Jesse, a statement in a very negative way about the matriarchy and the necessitates that are doomed to fail? And if the answer is yes, I see you nodding your head, and that's why I'm posing this, because I think I might be too. Mm -hmm. Set against Christmas? And I mean that in the most non-secular, biblical, allegorical way. I'm like referencing that same thing. Domestically, this film is broken. The relationships between boyfriend and girlfriend sucks. She's going to end up killing him later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Miss um, Mac is hideous. And all of that is tied to the same idea, the central theme to me. Yeah. On motherhood, and that's what got me thinking about Hitchcock. You brought it up earlier. Mm -hmm. That's what really stuck me down. That when we were watching, I was thinking about Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't. I'd have to go through this a few more times with a fine tooth comb and really sort of dissect that. But in this moment mm -hmm. here, that, and I think there's really a an interesting statement being laid before the uh, silver screen at the audience in a very interesting setting yeah. and tone. And theme. You want to go run with some of that? Well, I don't even need to. That's amazing. I'm glad that you brought that up. But this, you kind of see why I like this subgenre a lot is it gets treated like trash by Roger Ebert and the critics at this time. This movie had like such mixed reviews when it came out. But when you really kind of peel back the layers of what it is at the surface, which is a slasher, a cop procedural whodunit, these films often present a lot more psychological happenings going on at the same time. And if you want to dig deeper into that, it's there. If you just want to enjoy it at face value for the hack and slash, that's there too. But these films always have a deeper connection and it always has to deal with the motivations of the killer. Why are people kill? Why is the Sawyer family killing in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Well, they've been run out. It's simple economics, survival mm -hmm. of the fittest at mm -hmm. that point. Why is Michael killing? Well, he's stunted sexually. Yep. Why, why is why are all these people killing? And and it leads into the breakdown of of the characters in and of itself. No, I think that's absolutely a worthy interpretation and and very interesting. This movie for a long time, I think, in the horror fan base, held a pretty high place. But in just popular lexicon of film, I don't think this is held in an important position. That's a mistake. Yeah. This isn't a bad film. I mean, it's 1974, and I don't think they had a ton of budget to work with. And in some ways, I think that works. Yeah. The cast in and of itself is rather impressive, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Margot Kidder, before she becomes Lois Lane, and then before she loses her marbles entirely. Well, I think she had done Sisters with the Palmer yeah. this same year. It's a good year for her. Mm -hmm. John Saxon, who plays this role a lot, but he's good at it. Coming off of Enter the Dragon. Fantastic film that we're going to cover someday. We're going to do a martial arts thing. We have to. Yeah. And then Olivia Hussey. And Kier Dulé, who had just worked with Stanley Kubrick in 2001. Space. Yeah, exactly. 
these are not no names. If you're getting Margot Kidder post De Palma mm-hmm. and Kier Dulay post Stanley Kubrick, these are not unknown people. And the fact that he had a conversation with Betty Davis to play this role speaks to the fact that there was something here. Yeah. A lot of times you get, I always use this example, but Jennifer Aniston before anyone knew who she was in Leprechaun or George Clooney before anyone gave a damn in The Blob. Like, starting Kevin Bacon. No, 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 no not The Blob. Uh, Return to Horror High. I mean, Horror High, yeah. <laughs> um, somebody's in the, there's a Blob movie that's got somebody in it too. Kevin Dillon. There you go. Thank you. Johnny Drama. <laughs> um, right? What's his name? Um Kevin, Kevin, Bacon. Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th. So, like, there, there's a jumping off point. Mm-hmm. These people are already swimming. Yep. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't think their agents had enough insight to read that script and go, there's a very monumental message being delivered in this film. You should do it. Mm-hmm. But he did get them. He I did. Mean, the proof is in the pudding. Watch the movie. They're right there in front of you. This was the other thing I forgot to mention in that. So the voice on the phone, that's, it's a bunch of people, but like one of them is Bob Clark doing the voice on the phone too. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you kind of just see, you know, how he's able to kind of put this whole thing together. Uh, that was great, man. I absolutely loved all that just because it made my little slasher love come out because it is a genre I truly, really like. I know you had to have looked it up. Is Margot Kidder's very next film after this Superman? I don't think so. Um, and, and Sisters might be at the year before after. I think it's the same year as this, but uh, four years from Superman. That was 78. Mm. So she's a, a little bit of a waste from that, but but not quite. I mean, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. She has something to her. I don't, I don't know what it is, but she's always been so odd to me. Uh, but she certainly stands out. I mean, just kind of the way she hard drinking, mm. insanely inappropriate any any chance she's given. I mean, she gives the the number to the house's uh, uh, exchange fe, and then the the rest of the numbers fellatio, uh, fellatio, just to screw with this guy who doesn't know any different. Um, and then talking about uh, turtles that just hump for three days straight when they're talking to the father of the missing girl. You know what I mean? And calls it boring. Yeah. So says, I'd be lucky to get three minutes, Mm -hmm. but who wants to watch somebody hump for three days? Like, if you want to decode all of that with the theory I laid out earlier regarding patriarchy, matriarchy, Mm -hmm. and the ability to procreate, there's (laughs) that is loaded. I'm not going to get into that because that's an hour discussion. I want to write a paper. (laughs) You should. (laughs) should write a paper. Excellent. Well, let's get some more of Billy. Hello? 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 Oh, hell, not again. Billy? Billy? I'm sorry, you have the wrong number. What your mother and I must know is... Where did you put the baby, Billy? You've got the wrong number. Where did you put Agnes, Billy? Billy? Look, I'm telling you, you have the wrong number. What your mother and I must know is... Billy! I'm going to give you my diagnosis on what's going on behind these phone calls. I think Agnes and Billy are brother and sister. I think they were out playing outside one day and through whether it was intent or by accident, I think Billy did something horrific to Agnes, killed her, and hid the body, buried it uh, 
hit it in the woods or something. And that's the parents coming in on him saying, what did you do with Agnes, Billy? Like, what did you do? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And I think at from that moment, so whether he's five or six when that happened, has been locked up since then, the missing piece we don't get is the breaking out or the escape from wherever he was locked up. But I think he's physically stunted in that headspace of that event. Five-year-old Billy. Yeah. Yeah. I buy that. And in, in, I, I like that the film doesn't feel the need to go in any deeper than those phone calls on a backstory. And now, as I mentioned, the remake's going to go head first into that, which is why I hate prequels and remakes is they the need to overexplain. But here it's kind of teased out and it, it, it shows just the mystery of him. We don't even get a good look at his face. We get an, an eye mm-hmm. twice, mm-hmm. but that's it. I love that there's different voices on the phone call. The phone call is a snapshot into the killer psyche. And so when you get different pantameter and dialect and, and tone, it's the warring narratives inside his own mind. This guy is batshit. And obviously he's going to portray it in the way that we see in, on screen. But, man, it's hard to watch. The audio is a little bit muddy. And all of that, there's some white noise kind of mixed in there. <laughs> the grunge version of uh, the killer's intellect, I guess. Mm-hmm. Because it's muddy and murky and mixed up and unclear. And here's the other one, stark and harsh. Billy's, of all of our bad guys that are serial killers, today, Mm -hmm. right now, sitting here at this time, I think I am more unnerved by Billy than I am any of the other Four big ones, Leatherface, Michael J. Oh, uh, absolutely. And we're never going to even really see him. And what I like most about that, too, is they never made a sequel to this. So there's no continuation on this story. I mean, this is what we get of it. There's no continuing on with the next crimes or more of the backstory. I mean, watch what you have here, and that that's all you're going to get of, of Billy. And I, I think that's that's pretty well done in this. When... um. In prom night, when we get the killer revealed and he's in that black skin suit, and as you said, he's just very agile <laughs> and like impish. The way he he's so springy, so springy, <laughs> like the Spider Man serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that does Nicholas uh, Hammond's Spider Man. Yeah, it does a lot to sort of defang the killer. The fact that all we get is an eye and a bloodshot eye two times in this film of our killer killer, Billy, keeps him stronger and more mysterious and omnipotent and omnipresent and makes him more scary to me. I, I love Prom Night. I do. Um, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you're bringing up Prom Night. Uh, that's one of, that's just a favorite. Like, I love the disco music. In that oh, I do band. too. Jamie Lee Curtis is such a great dancer. And Leslie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, I know. Weird. It's ridiculous. But let's talk about, like, the Canadian influence because... Yeah. Canada had such a, a profound foot, footprint in the slasher game because they had this prom night, My Bloody Valentine, Curtains, mm. and I know I'm, I think Terror Train mm-hmm. is also is also them. All those films have, and maybe the thing I pick up on a Canadian slasher is the glazed over camera lens. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it feel like everything's a bit foggy yeah. or cloudy? Mm-hmm. And I like it. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it sets a, a, a tone for... It almost feels like th- this is such a crazy scenario that it's almost dreamlike. Yeah, You're walking through a nightmare 
so to speak. But now they're really good with that. And then as they're about to get into the eighties, I mean, they're going to, they're going to bring out the gore in spades. I mean, my bloody Valentine, has got shredded by the censors because of how gruesome it was, but that footage has been reinserted and it's a bloody good time. <laughs> with all of those that you mentioned, I think curtains made one of my lists a few weeks ago. <clears throat> um, you have a favorite and a least favorite? Well, this one, this one, yeah. I always like this one. So this is number one. Maybe. Man, my bloody Valentine's close. Like, that's a really cool slasher. The, mm-hmm. the setting is a mine. The killer, the miner look is awesome. It's Valentine's Day. You got, you're playing off of a holiday. But Prom Night's just a guilty pleasure. I don't, like, much like you, like, I don't necessarily think that's, like, a great movie, but it's kind of fun to watch. I mean... There's some moments in it that are pretty good. Mm-hmm. The second act sucks, though, in that film. But I, much like taking off of uh, Black Christmas, you had the killer at the beginning calling all the students who um, were involved in the game that killed the sister. Jude, do you like to play games? Like, the phone calls are just, they're just chilling. I mean, there, there's an effectiveness to that. And then as he starts bouncing all around the school. But let's talk about the the setting, the slasher setting as is. I mean, we've talked about Friday the 13th being, you know, the campground or whether it's Haddonfield in these streets. My favorite of the settings is actually the collegiate campus. So whether it's this or final exam or the dorm that dripped blood, mm-hmm. I think the university, screen two, the university presents a cool location because there's so many places that you can hide, um, but there's just something kind of cozy about the way this sorority is laid out. It looks warm in there. It looks welcoming. Uh, it looks homely, and it looks like a place where you can get comfortable. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think when you're comfortable, you let your guard down, and then that's when the scary shit happens. But... Uh, let's let's catch up with a little bit here. So Jess goes to Peter, which is her boy, Kier Dule, who's this concert pianist at the university, who's, she tells him, I'm pregnant, I'm not going to keep it, and we can talk about it. And he's like, oh my God, you're telling me all this now? And before my big recital? So it totally throws him out of whack. So when he gives his recital, it's like the worst, it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon. It is, it's awful. <laughs> terrible, absolutely terrible. And in the middle of that, they're still looking for Claire, trying to, go through any avenue but they're also looking for another missing uh high school girl who never came home so there's a search party looking for the two of them i want to ask you because this never told to us and i don't know what the consensus is did billy kill this little girl too on the way to the sorority that's what i think i think it has to be close right because they would search the area around the sorority Mm -hmm. for um claire and so i think the park is in an appropriate distance to feel like it's in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I think along the way he probably did her in. So we don't ever have proof on that, but they wouldn't bring it up. And this guy is, is uh, clearly unhinged. So yes. And in the middle of that, Bob Clark still balancing out these horrific phone calls and these gruesome killings of kids in parks with, he's keeping it light still. Sergeant Nash. Could I speak to you for a minute? Yeah, sure, Lieutenant. <laughs> What's this? Well, that's the number at the sorority house. Felicia? <laughs> yeah, it's a new exchange. FP. New exchange? 
Yeah, Felicia. <laughs> One of the girls that was in this afternoon gave it to me. She gave it to you. <laughs> Yeah. Nash, I don't think you could pick your nose without written instructions. I love this moment because it's it's a chance to let our guard down and laugh at something as silly as fellatio, which this guy has obviously probably never received. Otherwise, he'd know the word. Right. <laughs> but um, it shows both, the I think, the proficiency and the inefficiency of the authority figure, which is important in this genre. And again, trying to think back to pre this, can't really think of a film that, you know, kind of sets up those rules of how authority is supposed to work. They're competent in trying to do a good job, but because of the guy taking the intake calls here, he's letting stuff slip through. He's not getting the appropriate phone numbers. He doesn't know that the calls are um, from the same house or the, is the same address as the missing girl. I mean, they're letting like, a lot of things slip through the cracks here. They're almost antagonizing themselves. <laughs> Hard drinking Barb, Margot Kidder, gives them a bad number. This is a really important moment because that's how they're going to communicate. They'll take care of it down the road. And we'll get into, I'm sure we'll talk about the phone tapping bit and what an arduous process the phone tapping expert guy Let's goes Let's do that to. right after this. <sighs> Barb would rather tell a joke and make a mockery of this guy. She cracks a beer when they're at the police station. Right. <laughs> She's loaded the whole film. And so instead of recognizing how important doing the right thing or necessary thing is, which would be some level of competence, mm -hmm. the movie, again, is riddled with incompetence every measure, every beat. Who goes to the cop station loaded cracks another beer and then gives a fake number of fellatio only to have the guy that you give the number to not get the joke yeah and these clowns are going to catch billy and bring him to justice before he does in a bunch of quote unquote and they're not but for the sake of this argument ingenue sorority yeah. sisters no way no <laughs> way but yeah. if one of them would stop acting like such an asshole mm-hmm Oh, they'd solve this really quickly. But kind of everyone in this movie is, mm -hmm. including Jess. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a case here in a little bit that she's kind of an asshole too. You know, and I think it makes for an interesting final girl. Right. And maybe the first one. Again, I'm trying to think back to pre this and we're really establishing, you know, the roles here. But the, like a final girl that's not Laurie Strode and very pure. This is a girl that... Um, has a lot going on with her, but we'll get to that in a second. I want to talk about this phone tapping thing because I think one yeah. of the most overused tropes, and I'm not a cop. I don't know how they tap phone lines. I mean, it's probably a lot easier now. Sure. But one of the most overused tropes in, in cop action films is the tapping of phones. Because to me, it's always a guy with, he's got the phone plugged into a tape recorder, and that's how they, they, they tap a phone, which I don't, whatever. That's just what you see. But in this, they tap the phone lines, and then the guy has to go to the phone company and actually watch the phone signal go through the different terminals until it gets to the one with 6 Belmont Street. That's cool. Like, I like seeing that action, like, play out on screen. Yeah. It's not just, oh, yeah, we, we tap the phone, and we're just, gonna like, recording it. Like, however it works. I'm like, that's bullshit. This is cool. Like, I like watching that action. And there's some suspense to that. I mean, you have to keep him on the phone long enough for the guy to go run through the terminals to find the, the correct one. If the call ends, it's for shit. All of the things that cell phones have brought to our society is mm -hmm. 
great, but it's killed a lot of things too, and it's done irreparable harm to the horror franchise, oh, hasn't it? Oh, of course, yes. Being grounded and landlocked because the phone is a landline instead of mobile and signal. And that's literally the way, I mean, I don't know, but that has to be the way that they tapped phones prior to the way they do it now. Mm -hmm. As you sit there amongst the circuitry, watching the pulse fire from A to B until you can lock down the particular node Mm -hmm. that's given to a house. Like, that's arduous, man. You know how many freaking phones there are? Yeah. No wonder you need to keep them on the phone long enough because... (laughs) <laughs> you got to give me time to run up and down. Right. Mm-hmm. I love that bit in him and up and down the aisles of that in the labyrinth trying to find the, the Minotaur. It's so good. And maybe the conversation, maybe there was a sequence in that, but I can't remember. But I've never seen that in a movie before. Right. Like that. that's what's also cool to me about it. And he milked that for some pretty good tension and drama. Like keep him on the phone long enough. Oh, don't take a left turn. Like that in and out of the aisles of that circuitry is pretty high tension because everything hinges on them figuring out where the killer is. But you got to get through the labyrinth of circuitry in order to figure out, oh, yeah, that's that house. That, that's really well done stuff. I li- I thoroughly enjoyed that. Now, as they're fiddling around with the phone lines, the killer Billy is still running amok in the house. And then it comes to this sequence with these carolers that I think is actually shot and edited really well. Mm-hmm. And again, how I said Silent Night's my favorite and there's a sadness to it. There's something about the choral singing of Christmas joy juxtaposed with graphic murder that is... It's perpetrated in, by a unicorn. And it's interesting on, on screen. I don't decipher that as you will, but it's this. It's alright, Agnes. It's alright. Shh, pretty Agnes. Agnes, don't you tell what we did, Agnes. put together <laughs> look i'm just gonna address the elephant in the room when mm. he says you know what we did agnes and then it's scored to that choral haunting <clears throat> silent night and then outside of the audio outside of the visual just the audio mm-hmm. you don't know if that's euphoria or horror mm-hmm. that the person's going through now, this is kind of a trope that hitchcock used in the birds as well right oh yeah tippy hedron in the bedroom scene is she orgasmic or horrified can make the case here too. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to say one more thing, which is all the more troubling, and I'm not smart enough to figure this out right here cold, but of all the things to do her in with, a glass unicorn? I mean, it presents a sharp point, but there's a lot more going on than that. And if you just want to go with, that might be an emblem or a symbol of, kind of feels like, childhood for a girl Mm -hmm. now we're playing with the stalled out elements of upbringing in a feminine way him him and agnes using it on her Mm -hmm. that seems loaded man and then the kids are the ones that are singing it too jesse exactly we're playing with some really ugly stuff here yeah 
in this villain. Yeah, ugly. Movie. Yeah, is the is the right word. But pieced together in a way where you're able to kind of like shot really well. Yeah. When her hands go back and break the rest of those glass ornaments, those childlike glass ornaments, it's all done in slow motion, and you're only seeing his hands kind of go up and down, and his silhouetted eye just like, we're still keeping him in the shadows, because he is very much just something in the shadows, as the rest of these characters go about their stuff. Can I sour mash one thing here for yeah, you? Yeah, go ahead. Maybe it's more a question than sour mash. Okay, yeah, go ahead. The sequence prior to... Barb's death here is her having an asthma attack mm, mm-hmm. and her roommate. What's her roommate's name? That Je- one? Jess. No, no, the other one. The one. Oh, the, Phil. Yeah, Phil. Um, Jess is going to come in and see Barb in the middle of an asthma attack and give her the inhaler to get the asthma attack to cease. And we're, I guess we're supposed to believe it's she's having a nightmare. Do you want him to lord over her as she goes through an asthma attack through maybe like scaring her to death or do you do you see some potential there just him watching her expire as he holds the inhaler and just lets her breathe out until she's done yeah that could have been interesting i don't know if it plays with the context we're talking about with penetration and childhood elements and all that shit well it wouldn't be as interesting as how it looks there but that would be a unique way to go out of and then taunting your victim with that. Something I'm I wish was in that scene is so obviously he goes in there first and then Jess goes to give her the inhaler. He's still in the room. Yeah. I think in the, I wish we kind of saw some shadows, but the film's going to do that later with Phil and Barb talking about uh, on the phone and you kind of see him sidle in. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's just great use of, of, of the whole celluloid mm-hmm. filling it with, irrelevant information and suspense. What you don't see scarier than what you do see in this genre, especially always. We love that. That's not the first time we brought that up. Oh, it absolutely. No. Uh, Let's talk about Peter and then we'll kind of get into the finale of this film here. Do you think Peter Kierdule pianist uh, is, do you think his role here is, integral and obviously it is but do you think he's kind of here to be fodder as a, a bit of a red herring if we are doing a procedural who done it is kind of a well is it the claire's boyfriend is it peter is it this and for the audience that's bs because we know who's doing the killings but for the characters do you think that plays out um appropriately sure okay he's kind of unhinged The big moment, I think, for him in the movie is the destruction of his piano with the sheet music stand after he, I guess, fails his recital. Oh, no, of course he failed. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I have to say, sometimes with piano, like really fine, I shouldn't say fine, really elaborate piano, Mm -hmm. it's so busy. Sometimes I can't tell the difference between what's good and bad. Mm -hmm. And I was almost wondering, is he... Is this brilliance personified or is this disaster magnified? What And I think it's disaster. Oh, of course. What I kind of perceived his bad piano playing, I think he was playing the right rhythms. He was just in the wrong key. Whew. So it's, it's going to sound awful. terrible. Absolutely, yeah. He finishes that, doesn't pass, and then takes that stand to his piano and just destroys it. All of this is against what his girlfriend has told him. I have this baby. I'm pregnant. I don't want to have it. As a matter of fact, not only do I not want to have it, I don't want to be married to you. Well, let's get to that scene there too, because as she lays it on thick to him, 
I mean, I think it's less about like how you said, um, I have all this. I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is I don't want to be with you anymore. I don't want to marry you. And now that we're kind of cornered in on, on this thing, I can't be with you for whatever reasons the film doesn't tell us whether he was abusive or whatnot. Um, that's gotta be a knife to the heart more than anything that she tells him. I don't want to marry you, Peter. Yikes. (laughs) He's her last Hail Mary. Mm -hmm. And he does not present the best case with that haircut. Yeah. With that haircut and that stupid green sweater and just his general affect. Look, he's just dropped out of the conservatory. He's just failed his recital. And when all else is gone, I guess I'll go back to my woman. I don't blame her for saying that. I'm not your last stop on the train to Nowheresville so that you have some purpose to your life. So in 10 years, you can hate me when you have an affair. Yeah, what's his end goal? I mean, he's going to school for music. A, okay, that's questionable because you're going to teach or go into a professional concert pianist. He botched that. So like, what are, what's his career opportunities? Her. Yeah, exactly. And what that would mean would be getting married and then her raising the kid, which certainly has more, a heavier influence as young mother versus young father. And she says it to him just because you're out of chances. Doesn't mean I have to be out of chances. I don't want to have this kid. I don't want to be married to you. I'm done. But then on the flip side of that, that's also a little selfish for her because eventually that's coming probably anyway. Yeah. So now we're in a mess. A big mess. But Peter sucks. The the big takeaway is Peter sucks. Well, he walks away saying, you'll be sorry. And so planted a pretty nice seed in the audience's mind of why this guy would have an ax to grind against them. Mm -hmm. Now we know who's in the attic and... I guess there's some possibility that maybe it's sure, Billy. Yeah, it, 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 it could be it if could. they decided to do it that way. I'm glad they don't. Me too. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be Peter. Mm-hmm. Billy is Billy. <laughs> Billy's Billy. He might not even be Billy. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. So as they're tapping the phone lines here, you know, we're kind of getting the runaround. We're getting a little bit more to the story. And then, like Matt, I like I said, I when, when I was thinking and just kind of doing a few notes for this thing, I was like, when did some of the first for these films happen? So the first use of the killer calling from the house trope, whether it's when when a stranger calls, which go back and watch that movie. It sucks. That movie's garbage. And it, that that's four or five years past this. It was a little short film called Foster's Release. And it's just a little 14-minute movie. I might be able to find it on YouTube. I'm going to go check it out. But that was the first movie that, or short film that used that kind of trope. This movie came the next year. So this has to be the first major release that used this on screen, which is so cool because you get a moment like this. Twisted. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant Fuller, 
Yeah, Nash, what is it? A phone company's on the other line, sir. They say they got a trace on this one. Yeah, let's have it. He says the calls are coming from number six, Belmont Street. For Christ's sakes, Nash, you got it wrong. That's where the calls are going into. That's where they're coming from, too, sir. Now it sounds like oh, like the trope of he's in the killer's conference. This this has never been done before. I mean, this is new. This is fresh. And through their own botched police work, they decided not to put a tap on Mrs. Mac's phone because the no calls were coming in there, and that's where he's calling from. Mm-hmm. Like that's where he's that's how he's able to, to to do this. So through their own missteps, they've made a crucial error. And what, what do you think about this? Like you know, take the trope away before it we can use the word trope i mean i think you use that definition when it's been used a lot uh here it's not so back in 74 you see something like that and we already know who the killer is but there's got to be some sort of shock for the characters itself this is the hitchcock moment this is the body in the chest and rope revealed to the characters for the first time how does that you think that works for the tone of the film there isn't any distance Mm mm-hmm in 1974, if someone called you from a phone line and it was threatening or worrisome, there's due cause, I think, to take their words at face value, but there was a little bit of a softer landing built into that because there was the time in transit to get from wherever they're calling from to wherever you are. They aren't mobile. They're in some landline somewhere, even if it is a phone booth at the diner around the corner. Mm-hmm. They still have to get there. So you have at least bought a little bit of time. Worst case scenario, you can grab two things and get the hell out of the house on the run. When you find out the phone call is coming in the house that you are staying in, there's no distance. They're right there around the corner. I mean, they are on the other side of that door right now. Yeah. And this is so monumental that when a stranger calls... And whatever graces and accolades that film has received is entirely based upon that singular purpose. Absolutely. This movie birthed it. Mm -hmm. So my answer is this is monumental. And I mean that. I'm not saying those words lightly. This is a monumental moment prior to the invention of the cell phone in modern cinema. Now, I want to talk about another thing happening. I'm just trying to play film viewer, horror viewer, because, you know, you and I have seen a lot of these movies and we, I kind of know how the audience reacts as a defense mechanism. So the first next natural reaction would be just get the hell out of the house. Right. But she can't. And the reason she can't is, you know, Phil and Barb are up. She doesn't know the status of Phil and Barb. Mm-hmm. Matt, I'm just honest to God. Could you leave two of your closest friends upstairs knowing there's an assailant in your house and just walk out? Oh, Jesse. Because the answer for me, I couldn't. So for the horror viewer that says, well, that's cheesy. Why would she go back upstairs? Natural human nature would say you couldn't leave those people upstairs. Look, I'm going to say on the mic, of course not. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to believe that I'm structured (laughs) internally. Sure, yeah with the moral fortitude to carry that through. But the movie presents a case 
that that moral fortitude and doing the right thing long-term versus the immediacy of now is one of the failures of these characters. Mm -hmm. To Jess's credit, she doesn't fall victim to those same feet of clay sort of principles that everyone else has. Regarding myself, Mm -hmm. sitting here playing it out in my head right now, I'm going to tell you if it was my family or my close loved ones, no, but yeah. then I'm going to pose a, but I may be, I may be full of shit if that ever happens. God forbid. <laughs> yeah. But let me ask you another question. Okay. Okay. So remove the familiarity of the ones you love or close ones. Yeah. What if you know that there's some, you just know there's someone else in the house and some tragedy is about to befall them. I know. Would you go those lengths for someone who's unknown to you? Or not as as uh, important in the, your social hierarchy? Oh, that's hard. Like, until you're in the situation, I don't think you can pass judgment on that. You know what I mean? You're in the place that you know something bad's about to happen to someone in there. Mm-hmm. Are you morally erect enough to do the right thing there, knowing that it puts your mortality on the line? I don't know. Yeah, it's... It's hard. I'd like to say I'd jump in and kind of do what, what Jess does, but I'm glad Jess does what she does because the moment she grabs the fire poker and goes upstairs, I think on screen we get the the birth of the final girl of on screen, this person who's going to try and do whatever she can to protect herself and save uh, whoever's left and available and try and survive at the same time. Because so, then we get this chase, and then some more of that uh, audio that you were so stricken by. Agnes. Agnes, it's me, Billy. Agnes, Agnes, don't you tell what we did, Agnes. straight up psychopath running through the house. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) The screams, the banging. Yeah. And then that, that audio. So whenever they finish whatever sexual debauchery, he's clearly referencing in this film, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I mean, I think you gave the case earlier, like maybe they were outside playing and she knocked her head and he buried her or something, or then maybe not. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't need, and, it, and it's right there, and it's done on purpose. It's effective mm-hmm. and teases it enough that it makes it really uncomfortable in the viewer's mind if you want to pay attention to it. Sure. This person that's chasing Jess is fucking crazy yeah, and a, violent. A maniac. And I don't mean, well, yeah, Matt, you stab people with you. Like, all right. But on the other side of that door is the most horrible human not supernatural and that to me is key faceless we don't even know crazy as hell ugly deviant terrible mortal ready to unleash 
hell. And uncontrolled. I mean, there's a certain dance that like Michael Myers goes through. Yeah. He's so smooth and just glides from scene to yeah. scene. This guy is raw, uncontrolled, vicious, violent. And I'm kind of more terrified of what that person's capable of. You know what I mean? Yeah. So she's good thing she has that fire poker in there because at least she has something to defend herself with. But like if that door lock is to burst, my God, like whatever's coming through there is pissed. And what does come through while they're hiding down there is Peter, who's just been... I don't know why he didn't take a jacket with him. He's just been hightailing with his sweater in the freezing cold all night, stocking. I mean, he's sick too, kind of. Yes. I don't know what his end game is too, or what what he's planning, but just been watching the house all night from a tree. Breaks into the the basement here, and he's like, "Well, just what, what are you doing down here?" And she's like, oh, "It's him. Like it's like it, it's him." And as he gets into her, she she lets him have it. She murders him with this fire poker. And then I love how everything just kind of unfolds here in our final sequence as the cops come. They see the massacre that's taken place here. They're just by the nature of the way the crime scene's been laid out, they're like, Jesus, I can't believe it was Peter. I never thought he'd be capable of something like that. As Jess is comatose in bed, can't really say what's what's happened. Everything's kind of left up in the air. They found the bodies, but we can't talk with her yet. And then the camera, as and we do it in mostly just a one shot of kind of pulling back from Jess, her room, and then as she's left alone, and someone's going to watch the house. But as us, the audience, know, it wasn't Peter. It's this other guy. And then as we kind of go through the silent night of the house, uh, the only thing that's stirring is Billy upstairs in the attic. And that is truly horrifying to me. The inevitability of this scene is he's going down, he's killing her, and he, he either escapes into the night or they arrest him. I don't know. I don't never want to see Black Christmas Part 2, but the amb- ambiguity of this ending has always been effective to me. And the window's clear. Mm-hmm. If anybody cared to look, she's been there the whole movie. And then as the final cop, which I don't have any faith that guy could protect anything, but he's stationed outside on the patio we hear the phone ringing from inside. This is with some movement and laughing that's already been teased out by Billy. Well, poor Jess is... Agnes, it's me, Billy. (laughs) It's probably curtains for both of them. And it is such a stamp of inability that Claire is upstairs in the attic, in the window the whole time. And if anybody bothered to look... yeah. Man, and she, and to be consistent, that's presented in the movie early on because we see her in the daytime out there. Like we see a daylight shot through the glass looking across her profile as we see some action occurring outside the sorority. She's been there for days. They just haven't looked. I mean, they, they'll go to the park. What? Yeah. And the whole thing, right? It's hidden right underneath you. Right underneath your noses. And the part that kills me is that there's still the inevitability of having to tell Mr. Harrison, the father, that your daughter's been dead, but not only has she been dead, but she's been upstairs this entire time. You guys have been running around looking for her, and that's horrifying for me, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yet this film touches on a lot of things that just make me super uncomfortable as we fade out to the phone ringing with no one to pick up this time. 
Uh, and that's just, yeah, the, the mark that Billy has left, or whatever we want to call him on this film, has been immense, and it's left open. If you want to paint a rosier picture at the end, I guess, you could say since Jess is comatose, she wouldn't be able to answer the phone, so maybe if you don't take the phone call, he won't come get you just yet. But I kind of expect any second that cop to walk in and pick up the phone anyway <clears throat> and just get the ball rolling down the hill again. Yeah. And even if he doesn't, and that's her last line of defense, why bother? Mm -hmm. There's not going to be any competence there either. It's a great ending. And that's Black Christmas. Uh, Just a couple things real quick. $600,000 budget, uh, $4.1 million gross. I mean, this was before these types of films got very popular, like much like the ones we <laughs> listed off that were big hits when they came out because it was all the rage. I mean, they were cheap to make, quick to make, and kids, teenagers, they they went in droves to go see these week after week. I can't imagine a Canadian slasher horror found a whole lot of screens that were willing to take it on. Well, we got, we, we, we got them here too, but... Um, some of them were definitely like, well, Prom Night was hugely popular mm-hmm. when, when that film came out. Uh, and then, yeah, as the genre goes on and gets a little, a little as any genre will, Star Wars, mm-hmm. uh, when there's so much of it and so many different versions of it, eventually it gets a little tired out, uh, gets a little played until you find, I mean, 1984 is kind of the end of the craze. But then it's the beginning of something entirely unique, and that's Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, that's taking the genre into a supernatural specter, a space. Uh, then you have Hellraiser and Child's Play, and now you're playing with different. Doing you're doing the same films, but with a different backdrop. Maybe that's the nightcap coming up here in a little bit. Yeah. But '84 is the last year. Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is would be another Christmas one worth kind of diving into because that's. The story behind it's even more interesting because it's the film that killed this whole thing. It killed just the entire momentum that this genre had. Really? Yeah. So, no, yeah, that's uh, it's interesting that it's kind of been going on. And, and you see it pop up from time to time uh, with, with certain films. Like Scream was able to bring it back for a little bit. And then we got crazy about remaking all of these old films, much like this one. This film had two remakes, and they're both terrible. Because uh, they go against what made this film so good, which is the ambiguity and the mystery of what the hell's going on here. I mean, everything is just too explained in everything else. And honestly, just not as well made and not as well directed. Uh, one one other uh, little little anecdote here. Two, two more. The music is um, a standout for me. It's got a tone to it. So uh, the Carl uh, Zitcher... Uh, would tape knives and forks to the piano strings. And so if they're so close to the string, when you when you play the note, that vibration is going to bounce off of the utensil and kind of give it that... I, I think I'm going to play some of it coming up here, but a unique-sounding musical score. And then my favorite little anecdote. So Steve Martin, the comedian, the jerk, these cans, <laughs> uh, ran into Olivia Hussey... Along in the nineties or whenever, and it's like, oh wow! Like he's like, nice to meet you. You were in one of my favorite movies of all time, and 
her being like the original Juliet of Romeo and Juliet says, Oh, the Romeo and Juliet is like, like, no black Christmas. He's like, it's an annual tradition of mine. Wow. So even she didn't kind of know the legacy that this film has made in years past. So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, What's your favorite tasting note of black Christmas? I think it's the audio that you played with him trying to break down the door when Jess is behind it. As uncomfortable for me. I was hard to watch. That doesn't happen often. We've seen a lot. That's good for 1974. Yeah, man, that's really awful. Mm-hmm. And it's truly horrifying. That that thing is chasing you, and that thing is human. Barely. <laughs> scary. It's, it's very scary for me. Yeah, my favorite tasting note is probably going to be the phone calls, but not in like a good way, but in the way it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. The home invasion is enough to really get me on edge, but the... The, the nature of these phone calls is enough to, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. I would hang up that phone so quickly. Uh, and then you have that element. Yeah, the guy's just, he's calling from the room upstairs. You got that whole thing in play too. So that's going to be it for me. It's a first for this genre to really amplify the phone as a mechanism. And then just the nature. It's that first phone call. The things he says I just can never say the C word. You know, I'm just going to say that right now. Right. That's like one word you can't say. And he says it about five or six times. And can't say that word. Things he says that he's doing with with said word. I know it. For 74, like that's that's something. Like, Mm -hmm. it's got to be just, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but like films hadn't done that before this. Pushing the envelope. There you go. That's the word. What's the. Moment of the film where we have to pound it back with some more Old Forester single barrel. I'm going to raise it to the cinematic way that Barb is killed. Mm. It's a really violent, horrifying scene shot beautifully. Yeah. The glass and the blood and the stark contract. It, but we didn't even talk about this, but did you notice the stark contrast of red in this film? Mm-hmm. You know what really stuck out to me is the scene in the cop car. When John Saxon goes back out, how red the cherries on the cop car are on that. The, the reds in this movie are exploding. They pop. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just the way that the film was shot or maybe it's designed that way. I don't think they did anything specific to the the lights on the cop car. But that scene, that's it. That's going to be. And you get the kids singing outside too. Right. Like that's all part of it. Yeah. Harkens to. The Godfather in a certain way, and there's just a lot of really, really good stuff happening in that 45-second sequence. Mine's going to be the death of Claire right at the beginning, Mm. and there's something sick about the way that plays out because she goes into the closet and gets some hangers and some clothes off the thing and then walks away as we we do a slow pan into the back of the closet and see some hands moving behind the the dry cleaning sheet. And you're like, oh, God, like he was, she was right next to that. You know what I mean? It's like your moments from escape and then moments from your own fatality. Mm-hmm. And as she goes in and just kind of just gets smothered with this thing. And then the next time we see her is her in the rocking chair with like this agape mouth, like suffocated is truly horrific. Mm-hmm. It's not a bloody film. I mean, Barb's death is probably the most bloody thing in the movie and you don't even see it on her really. Uh, but the deaths are entirely vicious mm-hmm. um, who's the master distiller on black christmas bob clark that's 
appreciate the work that this guy did with those three films that we mentioned and how different they all are, but equally effective tone-wise. You can say what you want about Porky's, I guess, but it delivers on the raunch comedy that was supposed to be. Raunch comedy before there were even really raunch comedies. Yeah, this is like that's like 20 years pre-American Pie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's what I'm going to give it to. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Who, uh, well, he, it's just the way he directed it. It's it's spooky. It's, I think that the characters are playing with some real, like, kind of human emotions and elements. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not just, like, kind of cookie cutter, like, get them, other than Mrs. Mack, who you want to see done away with right away. Uh, I think that the characters are interesting, and they're flawed in their own way, but they're flawed and by their own demise, uh, I think makes it interesting that they're not good people at the end of the day, like all of them, that they are all making morally interesting choices. There just so happens to be a killer hunting you upstairs. Lo and behold. Lo and behold. Yeah. How are you going to rate and grade Black Christmas? So just a recap, we'll do this occasionally. We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Real quick, is this Old Forester? Is this a single barrel, single barrel whiskey? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Much like this film for me, too. That's the rating I'm going to give it. Mm-hmm. There's a uniqueness to this film. It's not perfect. It's really good. There's a lot of firsts. And anytime we have more than you got lucky and walked into a first, but deliver on three or four of them in the same movie. Yeah, we named a lot. You've tapped into something special. Mm-hmm. And I can't recommend this movie enough for people to see, whether it's holiday fair or otherwise. Sit down, find yourself 90 minutes to two hours, and just really appreciate what you're witnessing in 1974 because it doesn't feel like 1974, and in some ways, it feels a little reheated, but only because... It's been done to death. But because of this, Mm -hmm. it's been done to death. Yep. And the first to cross the finish line with the idea always holds a special place in my rankings. That's why this is single barrel. Me too. With a bullet. Yeah. Single barrel... Yeah, single barrel, just right in the middle. Uh, Halloween would take this formula and do wonders with it and just make a better movie with that. But I think if you if someone goes and watches this that's never seen it, I actually think it might actually freak you out a bit. Mm-hmm. Like whether it's the phone calls or the sound design or the music or just the atmosphere that Clark and crew are able to kind of get across on screen – I think you're going to be a little uncomfortable watching it at times. So be glad for those moments of comedy and levity that are peppered throughout because at times it is because it feels real. I mean, like we rattled off, whether that's Golden State Killer or Ted Bundy or insert whoever's real life psycho that's really done these things like Mm -hmm. this. To me, Michael's a bit of a fantasy and Jason and especially Freddy Krueger. There's something about Billy and the realness that he presents himself with that feels like this guy's like he's based and if not you know it inspired by a lot of real life psychos and that that to me is truly horrifying that's the stuff the true crimes that's the stuff that gets under my skin amen yeah i agree so to that let's wrap this episode up with a nightcap Nothing says Merry Christmas like all of that. Jeez, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So man, let's talk. Let's talk about this. So yeah, okay. So Black Christmas, nineteen seventy four. It's a Christmas movie, but when you think Christmas movie, you think it's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone, The Grinch. You're not gonna just throw this on just like you know for family Christmas movie night. So it's a very out of genre ish set film for a horror film. Uh, so I think the way we've kind of decided to do this is what's three other our top three uniquely set genre films. Yeah. What do you got? Number three. Midnight Cowboy. It's a buddy movie set amidst the world of male prostitution. What? Oh. Um, I should have put that on my top three to do. Like, we got to do that movie. I know. I, I, I forgot it too. Mm-hmm. It's, we'll have to do that. Uh, great performances. First movie that officially won the Academy Award with an X rating, although for walk, best picture, walk back to an R rating. There's no way that should be an X rating, but the yeah. male fellatio thing I think was tough. 1967. I mean, they hadn't seen stuff like that back then. So that's my three Midnight Cowboy. There's no way that that's where you set a buddy movie. Yeah, no way. That's who you're That's Rizzo. Yep. Number three. I'm for- walking here. I'm walking here. <laughs> it's such a good movie. Uh, number three for me, superhero film. It, it's not my favorite in the series, but when I think of this film and these characters, I always think Christmas now. Mm. And it's Batman Returns set at Christmas time. Mm. Matt, whenever I think Catwoman and Penguin, like I associate them with Christmas. Like. Mm. So uh, when they're showing up in this new Batman movie, it's from what we've seen not set at Christmas. That's a hard pill for me to swallow just because of what I'm used to the environment that that film established with those characters. So uh, interesting that um, they decided to do that. It's, it's a nice change of pace for, for Gotham. Uh, so you see the, the joyous side of Gotham to an extent. Good choice. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Number two, okay. the birds. <clears throat> Natural disaster film set amidst multiple competing love triangles. We'll have to really dig in. Well, I've been dying to do another Hitchcock cask at mm-hmm. some point because we've left a lot on the table that we oh. haven't done. <laughs> yeah. That has to be in there because there's just too much to talk about of the emotional strife of the characters taking place. Yeah. Good choice. So, yeah. Um there's a whole lot of narrative around the ending of that film. I'm going to present a case that it's actually buttoned up more than you think it is, but uh, there's no way that this mother nature taking her vengeance upon man via bird has to do with competing narratives for who should be with who romantically. Number two for you. Number two for me I'm going to go only because the first film established an entirely different character and environment. I'm going Rambo first blood part two because first blood is essentially an anti-hero movie mm-hmm. with the man against the establishment. Uh, and part two is an action movie with turning anti-hero into superhero to go to Vietnam. Wow. So, at the end of the day, I don't think Rambo First Blood Part Two is necessarily a good movie. It's certainly an exciting, entertaining movie. But to take the concept that you established, which based on a novel, First Blood, of a Vietnam vet coming back, treated poorly, and he snaps, and then he's against authority, to take that character and say, well, you're the only one that can go save the Vietnam people, and take the Vietnam vet back to the place that traumatized him so much, I think is interesting. Um 
And again, Rambo blows up a guy with an exploding arrow. It's, it's awesome. awesome. <laughs> Number two for me. Good choice. Yeah, I would love to do the Rambo movies as a cast because uh, all of them are interesting in their own right. Have you seen the new one? Newest one? I have. I, I actually got this awesome. I'll show it to you. It's this steelbook set with all five of them. Cool. And I like that fourth one in Cambodia. Brutal. Brutal. Directed by Stallone. <laughs> yep. Number one. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. Akira Kurosawa's ran mm. to take King Lear, essentially, Shakespearean staple, and set it amidst the world of samurais with more domestic issue than swords and honor is genre-bending and mind-blowing. We could do a whole number of things of the films influenced by Akira Kurosawa. That's one of his last films. Mm-hmm. I think that's 85. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my third. That's Great that choice. was number one. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Whether it's Hidden Fortress or Seven Samurai or... Dreams. Uh, yeah, Dreams, San, Yojimbo, Sanjuro. Those, the, Yo, Yojimbo and Sanjuro are the Man With No Name trilogy. Right. Uh, great. Yeah, that's awesome. He did I, another one. He did a film called Redbeard. Mm-hmm. And it's Hamlet. Oh, no, no, no. It's Macbeth. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should maybe want to tackle that sometime. That would be a fun one. Have you ever it? seen the film? He's just such an interesting filmmaker for me. And, like, you have to get over the idea of subtitles and foreign films to appreciate mastery at times. Mm-hmm. He did a film called Aikiru, set in modern Japan, and it's about a man who finds out he's terminal. And it's, I've wasted my entire life at this job that I hate. Yeah. What do I do with the time left given to me? So it's playing with an interesting thing that you know he's going to die, and it's what's he going to make with the rest of his life. And it's it's brilliant. It's it's so good. Mm. Yeah. And heartbreaking. That sounds great. Could build a cask with that in the 25th hour and something else. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Excellent. Number, All right, I'm dying for your number one. Number one for me, I'm going with the third film in a franchise, and it's horror. But to take the films that you established with the cabin in the woods and then to completely throw that out the window and now it's taking place in medieval times, I got to go Army of Darkness. Yeah. And I love that. I like I like sequels that take, whether it's Thor Ragnarok or um, I'll, I'll think of some other ones, but films that take the idea of a sequel and just throw what, what came before and we're just like, we're just going to take it in an entirely new direction to keep it fresh and unique because you can only do, honestly, you can only do the cabin in the woods story so many different ways. Yeah. Uh, when number two ends and he's in the time of Knights of the Round Table, and part three takes that concept and runs, but it's still the same style and horror of the Necronomicon is just so much fun. Mm-hmm. And who knew part three would end up there? Right. So, and it's it's great. It's a, it's a fun ride. So number three, Army of Darkness, Medieval Times. I love it. That would be, there's a cask right there too. It is a cask. Yeah, that's, it's a great cask. <laughs> I'm just kind of surprised you didn't go with Inception. Did you even consider it? Maybe the heist movie. Set in the dream world. Set yeah, in the dream world. I, that's probably a miss on my part, actually. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not a miss. I just, we, t- it's almost too obvious. That is great. I mean, that's, and that had to have been the pitch by Nolan. Uh, is I want to do a heist movie, but it's set within the world of, of, Dream building. Dreams. Yep. And they're probably like, oh, you're in, and you want how much? You're insane. Go do Batman first. And he did Batman. It was a hit. Okay, well, maybe we'll do this one now. And they did. And it was 
It's one of the highest grossing original concept movies of all time. I mean, we need more of that. So to the spec world, that's an important film. Mm -hmm. The other one that I gave a little consideration to also was bad Santa. Oh yeah. Excellent. Um, I didn't go with either one of those two, obviously, but I think there, and there's a million more, but those are also worth mentioning for me. You have an honorable mention one that was close or you thought about, I kind of thought about Charlie Chaplin's the gold rush for a little bit. You Mm. know, that's kind of set around like new year's and Thanksgiving and the whole seasons. But the way that film kind of juxtaposes poverty and riches and the iconic, you know, potato roll dance that he does. There's such a genius with Charlie Chaplin. The Tramp character evokes so much about Depression-era life and why that character was so popular at those times because people actually lived in Chantates like he did, mm-hmm. like the Tramp. And any any way to bring comedy in the light of that type of sadness is is um, is amazing. I mean, the man the man's a genius. Well said. So I, I gave some consideration to to that one. Jason takes Manhattan. Not, <laughs> although fits the rules of the flight question it does. or nightcap question. Yeah. But no, that's a good omission. Wait till we get to that movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's Black Christmas from 1974. Let us know some of your favorite uniquely set genre films. And Matt kind of teased it out just a little bit earlier, but we got Christmas coming up this week. So December 26th will be the next episode drop, but it'll still be of the season. My tree will still be up. And we will be dropping out from, I think, I'm just spitballing. I think it's 1947. It's a wonderful life. I can't. People are like, oh, no. Are you sure you guys want to be oh, no about that? Yeah. There's a lot to talk about here. Well, first things first, we haven't done a Frank Capra film on this mm-hmm. podcast, so that's important, first of all. We've only done Jimmy Stewart one other time, and that was Vertigo, so that's important. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's – Matt, this is another one. I set it up with uh, Almost Famous. This was a film that I hadn't seen until I took your class. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it, I was like – the film almost wrecked me at the end. I was just in such a state of – Happiness, sadness of what Christmas is truly all about. I mean, I, I look at the tree out there and I'm like, how did it get to this? You know what I mean? Yes. Not that I don't like giving gifts. It's like I, I, I truly enjoy that. But like what happened that we're like we set up a tree, we put ornaments, and then we exchange gifts when then It's a Wonderful Life really breaks down like what it means to just be a good person right. at the end of the day. And I think we all just kind of need a lot of that. Like just goodness in the world. So Amen. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have that. It's gonna be something. As I said, there's only been like three movies to ever like make me like break down and cry. Rocky one and two and this one. So Yeah, I'm gonna shed some tears next week too. I might have to get up and just excuse myself. But you have that coming to you next week. Thank you, everybody, uh, for all the love and support this week. It's been uh, really amazing. Matt and I are really uh, psyched and jazzed about all the stuff coming in 2021. A lot of fun stuff to talk about. Uh, But until then, i got to get going. I've been getting some crazy phone calls. I'm going to go get my phone tapped. I bet it's going to be a lot easier than going and watching the terminals all night. Way easier. Guess what I have to do? No, because I can just block the call now. That's right. (laughs) From my phone. Sarah Marshall style. Yep. I got to go up in the attic and get the gifts that I have hidden up there for my daughter. Be careful up there. Yikes. (laughs) We'll see you all next week, everybody. Everybody, we're truly humbled. Have a great week and happy and merry. We'll see you in the light. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. 
Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to leave us a comment or some feedback, hit us up on any of the social media platforms or at Productions at gmail.com. Black Christmas is property of Canadian Film Development Corporation, Film Funding Limited, Ambassador Film Distributors, and Warner Brothers Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Agnes, it's me, Billy.